Welcome to Podcastica Patristica, your worker-owned source for early Christian history, theology, and calls for social revolution. We're your hosts. I'm Gerhard Steuben. And I'm Tyler Stanley. If you like us, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes so that we can release independent patristic scholars from the shackles of the bourgeois grip on the means of production. It really helps. What are we drinking today, Tyler? Today, we're drinking New Belgium's 1554. According to the brewmasters at New Belgium Brewery, this beer was extinct until one of them stumbled upon it in a book written in Old Flemish from the year 1554. From that ancient text comes one of the darkest, richest, and most vibrant beers. One of my personal favorites. Similarly, from the ancient minds of our church fathers, comes one of the most vibrant, challenging, and haunting figures, John Chrysostom. Also, John Chrysostom was essentially a Marxist, and New Belgium Brewing Company is 100% worker-owned, which is about as close as you can get to communism in a capitalist society. The year was 349 CE. It was a turbulent time, nearing the end of the Great Roman Empire and the reversal of the entire world's order. Constantine the Great had only recently made Christianity a legal religion in 325, and his sons Constantius II and Constans I were now sharing the throne. Away from the center of Roman power and politics, though, the sun was rising on the eastern half of the empire. In a bustling metropolis called Antioch, change was brewing for the Christian church. The city was lush and expansive, with a rich history and a bright future. It was at Antioch that the Jesus movement began to call themselves Christians. Not much later, the general turned to Emperor Titus, after he had destroyed the temple in Jerusalem took one of the cherubim from the Holy of Holies and hung it up on one of Antioch's gates. But the city was so much more than a museum. Antioch grew rich because of its prime location on the western end of the Silk Road, the trade route which spanned Eurasia from end to end and brought hordes of wealth, ideas, languages, and cultures to any city which happened to fall in its path. But most importantly of all, in Antioch in 349, a boy named John was born. A man named Secundus had worked his way up the ranks in the Syrian division of the Roman army. He lived in Antioch, a prosperous city ten miles east of the Mediterranean Sea, with his young wife and two children. As Secundus made his way in the world, successfully climbing the military and social ladder, Secundus unexpectedly died. Anthusa, only around 20 years old, was left a widow with three final gifts from her deceased husband. One daughter, one son, and one bank account big enough that the children could begin life well. That way they, like their father, could climb the social ladders of their times and make themselves into something, 
They could grasp the American, I mean the Roman, dream. But Enthusa had a gift of her own to give the children. Unlike her pagan husband, Enthusa was a Christian and was determined to see her children grow not only in stature, wisdom, and favor with Roman elites, but also favor with God. Enthusa woke up early each Sunday, before the sun had christened each week's feast day, and dragged sleepy-eyed John and his sister to church. As the sun rose over the horizons and beams of blue and white streamed into the newly constructed church at Antioch, John fidgeted in his seat and drew illegible letters and indecipherable shapes on his children's sermon coloring page. The bishop would speak about sin and repentance, the need to live pious and holy lives in order to avoid damnation and hellfire for eternity. Occasionally a sinner would confess his sins. A man once confessed to committing adultery by visiting the local brothel. Another woman confessed to having stolen a 300 denarii sum from her rich neighbors while they were away on business. The sinners were forgiven, but they knew how precarious their new situation was. In those days, confession was not only done in front of the whole church, instead of to a priest in a private booth, but people were only allowed one confession. Baptized Christians could only be forgiven once for these serious sins. If the man visited another brothel or the woman stole again, they could be commended to God's mercy, but they could not rejoin the church. John watched this church, this Christianity, in all its vibrancy and depth and seriousness. Eventually, at age 19, John himself was baptized and given the minor office of lector, of reader, in the church. His job was to read the lectionary passage of the day publicly, before the sermon. The scriptures he now held in his hands would eventually work their way into John's bones, would one day recreate the person he was at his very core, but that day was not yet here. First, John would pursue an extremely successful but short-lived career in the most prestigious of all Roman fields, rhetoric. At around the age of 20, John began studying rhetoric under the legendary orator, Libanius. As the empire waxed and waned from tolerant to Christian to Arian, back to pagan and back again to Orthodox Christian, Libanius remained a devout worshiper of the Greek gods. Luckily, their religious differences didn't hinder John from learning and thriving under the tutelage of Libanius. Rhetoric is all about the use of language. Specifically, it's about finding the most effective way to persuade your audience. So think of ancient rhetorical school like your college speech class, only a thousand times more intense. Rhetorical education took around six years and very few ever made it all the way through. The students would have already made it through grammar school, where they learned the basics of spelling and grammar, and memorized and wrote portions of classical texts, like the Iliad. In the first year, a student in rhetoric school learned the theory of rhetoric. Second year students studied prose works, probably something like Aristotle or Plato, usually taught by Libanius's assistants. 
In the third year, Libanius himself led the students in exercises known as the progymnasmata. These were different techniques and genre of speech. So you would practice telling a fable or a proverb or a refutation. One technique that will become extremely important later in this episode is called invective. It's where you just verbally bash your opponent and say as many bad things about them as you can. We'll get to that later. Fourth and fifth year students began learning to compose their own discourses. And sixth year students usually became teaching assistants and taught first and second year students. And on a side note, Libanius actually moved to Antioch from Alexandria, which, if you remember, is where Origen lived. So chances are high that the rhetorical styles of Origen and John Chrysostom, and probably a lot of the other fathers of the early church, are very similar. And thanks to his training in rhetoric, John became famous for his preaching. People would break out in applause during his sermons because he spoke so well. His reputation as a spectacular speaker earned him a nickname that we still use to this day, Golden Mouth or in Greek, Chrysostom. After his rigorous and excellent education in rhetoric and philosophy, John began an equally rigorous life as a new monk in the Syrian desert. John left the Gloria Romae for the inside-out glory of the hermit's cell, a life of solitude, study, fasting, and prayer. John wandered from Antioch into the wilderness and found a cave to call his home for the next few years. Each day John would wake up before the sunrise, meditate on his sins and the coming judgment of God which continually threatened him with damnation, eat a bare breakfast of bread dipped in salt water, and begin memorizing Paul's letters. At the end of two years, John memorized all of Paul's 14 letters in Greek, both the letter's original language and John's native tongue. 14 includes Hebrews, which all patristic authors, as far as I'm aware, attributed to Paul. After another lunch of scraps, John began weaving a baskets to sell to buy the next day's supply of bread. Three small baskets would have been enough to buy tomorrow's scant meals. Though John lived in Syria, he followed the Egyptian pattern of monastic life instead of the Syrian approach to the holy calling. These two schools of thought were well established by John's time and self-consciously defined themselves over against the alternative school. The main division? The role of work in monastic life. Syrian monks, both Orthodox Christians and heretical Manichaeans, thought of monasticism as a way to transcend the normal, broken economic patterns of this painful existence and return to a workless, toilless, Garden of Eden-like life. To a Syrian, especially to a Syrian monk, the most tragic part of the fall in Genesis was not guilt, it was not death, but it was work. It was the unending and drudgerous life of toil. The curse on the land, the curse on Adam, was, quote, By the sweat which will drip off your nose will you eat bread, unquote. Syrian monks, though, wanted to become like angels, 
like Eve and Adam in paradise before the fall, whose only work is to worship God all day every day. The monk in Syria brought a little bit of heaven, a little bit of Eden, to life on earth. Because of the generous contributions of lay Christians who were eager to support the Syrian monks, worshippers and intercessors like Stimon Silides, who lived for 47 years on top of a pillar, Syrian monks could challenge the money-driven, greed-driven societies in which they lived with a new vision for humanity. A humanity not marked by wealth and acquisition, but by the free, propertyless worship and adoration of God. Egyptian monks consciously rejected the Syrian approach to monasticism. Egyptian monks rejected the Syrian attempt to transcend humanity, to transcend work. Egyptian monks believed that work was an essential and inescapable part of being human, and so Egyptian monks prided themselves on being self-supporting. They, like Origen and Diogenes the dog in our last episode, prided themselves on their autarkeia, the freedom which comes from being dependent on no one but oneself. Therefore, the Egyptian monks claimed, at least, that their own work supported their monastic lifestyles. They didn't devour the houses of widows, like the Pharisees whom Jesus condemned. Instead, they, like Paul, supported their holy lifestyle by the manual labor of their own holy hands. They were artisans, weaving baskets and building ships, much like many of today's monastic communities support themselves with gardening, brewing beer, or crafting furniture. This is the monastic pattern that eventually won out in the broader Christian community. Because of the book, The Sayings of the Desert Fathers, which was a translation into Latin of the teaching of many influential Egyptian monks, and remains to this day a classic of Christian spirituality, the Egyptian pattern infused and formed monastic thinking for the next millennium and a half. It exercised a heavy influence on the rule of St. Benedict, which then became the touchstone guide for Christian monasticism the world over. Even today, a Christian monk supports her or himself by working, unlike a Buddhist monk, who follow a very similar pattern to the ancient Syrian approach. As I mentioned, John was a monk in the Egyptian style. Like a good Egyptian-style monk, even though living in Syria, John spent his afternoons at his artisanal tasks. After a day of hard work, he meditated on the scriptures he had memorized, as well as reading broadly in the rest of the Bible, and meditated on God's love and his unworthiness until the weight of sleep finally conquered him, late into the night and he lay down on the cave's hard ground until the next day's chance to repeat the pattern. His life was simple, but rewarding. He had retreated from all of the wealth, social advancement, economic pressure, sexual temptation, interpersonal troubles, and menial tasks of life in urban Antioch. In the cave, John lived a life of perfect simplicity and holiness. But soon, John would be forced to return to the world. Throughout his monastic life, and long before, John had a friend named Basil, closer than a brother and far more devoted. John and Basil had the sort of love and connection that only comes from a symmetry of spirit over years of interaction. To say John and Basil were best friends would be to cheapen the level of devotion that they shared for one another. Two friends 
two monks who wanted nothing in life except to be left alone so that they could care for their own souls and secure their salvation in the wilderness surrounding Antioch. But that would soon change. One day, John heard a rumor that the people of the church in Antioch were going to come and forcibly ordain him and his friend Basil. John was terrified of this prospect, since he thought of himself unworthy of the office and incapable of the responsibilities of the priesthood. His friend Basil, though? Basil was good enough. It would be a sin not to ordain Basil, John's wiser and more pious friend. John began formulating a plan to escape the ordination himself, but secure it for his friend. Not long after John heard the rumor, Basil also caught word of the portentous storm on the horizon. Basil went to John, his devoted friend, and pledged himself to follow John in whatever path John thought best, either to accept or to evade the priesthood. John ruminated over the future, agonized over the problems besetting him, until he arrived at a devious plan. A plan which had the potential to irreparably and permanently rift the bond between him and his best friend. John told Basil that they should accept the priesthood, and so they waited for the foretold day to come. When the group from the church at Antioch came to take Basil to the cathedral to ordain him, John wasn't there, and Basil resisted at first, but they assured him that John had already gone ahead and received the holy orders. Following his devoted friend, or so he thought, Basil himself proceeded to the cathedral and received the laying on of hands, the ordination to the priesthood. But John was nowhere to be found. All too late, Basil realized what had happened. John had tricked Basil into taking on the mantle of the priesthood, but John himself had evaded the ordination. Such a storm of emotions overtook Basil that even he himself couldn't put words to it. Betrayal, anger, fear, foreboding, distrust, and anxiety came close to describing the conditions of his shattered heart. After a few days, Basil went to find John in his cave, and succeeded this time in finding his best friend, or former friend. I guess it depended on what John would say to defend his actions. Basil approached the entrance to the cave, trembling with anger and fear, equally wanting to lash out at John and to be appeased by him. Both hoping and not hoping that John had a compelling reason for his betrayal. And so, nearing the cave, Basil saw John sitting at his chair, weaving his daily baskets and sat down beside the man he thought was his closest friend and ally in life. Silent, trembling, unable to find words to express the torment inside of him, Basil waited for John to speak. John's response to Basil survives in one of Chrysostom's most loved and influential texts, a little book called On the Priesthood. It is structured as a dramatic retelling of the conversation that John and Basil had sitting there in John's cave, and John's defense of his actions serves as an opportunity for him to describe the responsibilities of and requisite character traits for those entering the priesthood. 
Basically, it presents the priesthood as the most noble and difficult of all vocations, and John consistently argues that only noble, righteous, and wise people like Basil should be ordained, and that selfish, ambitious, inept, unskilled, or otherwise impious people like John himself should never be allowed to lead the church. It is a beautiful and compelling little book. As I was reading through On the Priesthood, I dog-eared pages with sections and quotes I wanted to read for you, but even referencing them all would take far more than the time that we have for this podcast. I realized after finishing that I had marked almost half the pages in the entire book, so this section is going to be necessarily shortened and incomplete. If you want to know more about John's theology of ministry, check out the book for yourself. You'll absolutely love it, I promise. John writes with such a clarity, immediacy, and convincing style that you'll forget you're reading someone who wrote almost 1,500 years ago in a different language. Before getting into the text itself, it may help to clarify a bit of the background on what John meant by the priesthood. Though John uses the normal word in Greek for priest, hieres, when reading the book, it becomes clear that John is alighting the offices of bishops and priests. And, for those who are fuzzy on that distinction, a priest is a local church pastor, a minister entrusted with the care of one particular local community of Christians. A bishop, on the other hand, is a step up the hierarchical chain. A bishop was responsible for all the churches in a particular city and thus was the authority over several priests in the city. For example, the Bishop of Antioch would have been the authority over all the priests serving at the several churches in Antioch. And, as a side note, in traditional terms, a cathedral is not necessarily a big, fancy church. A cathedral is whatever church happens to have the city's bishop operating from it. It's the church with the bishop's cathedra, the bishop's chair, in it. And so, when you're reading this little book, remember that John is talking about both the work of the local priest and the work of the superpriest, the bishop, at the same time. The thing which most struck me about John's ideal character of priests is their other-centric nature. And by far the most poignant example of that in the book is a little section from section 3, which I'll read for you. It begins with a quote from Romans 9, Tyler's favorite chapter in the Bible. Hey now, I have no problem with Romans 9 as long as you're reading it with Paul and not John Calvin. I don't understand the difference. Anyway, John says, I could wish, Paul says, that I were anathema from Christ for my brethren's sake, for my kinsmen according to the flesh. If anyone can say that, If anyone has a soul capable of that prayer, he would be to blame if he evaded the priesthood. But anyone who falls as far short of that standard as I do deserves hatred, not for evading, but for accepting it." Paul was by far John's favorite apostle, John's archetypical model for all things pious, theological, and ministerial. He says elsewhere, quote, of all the apostles, I love Paul the most." Unquote. And so, naturally, John considers Paul a model for what all Christian ministers should be like. And, as I quoted above, 
Paul said one thing almost inflammatory in its radicality and piety. I could wish that I were anathema from Christ for my brethren's sake, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul claimed that he loved his fellow Jews so much that he would be willing to be damned, that's the meaning of the word anathema, to be tormented for all of eternity if his, quote, kinsmen according to the flesh, unquote, would be saved. Paul was willing to trade his own salvation for others's. That's a huge claim. Paul wasn't willing just to take someone's place in prison, in Guantanamo Bay even, for just one lifetime. He was willing to go to the gulags for all of eternity for the sake of others. That's more brutal even than the crucifixion. That is far more radical than dying for another person. No description I can think of even approaches how huge, how massive, how incredibly selfless that attitude is. If ever there was perfect love, the exchange Paul claimed to have been willing to make achieves it. And John makes Paul's perfectly selfless love the basic criterion for Christian ministry. Only those who are willing to trade their own salvation for others is, or at least wish they were willing to make that exchange, are qualified to serve Christ's church. Anyone who is still captive to selfishness and ambition, who aren't willing to sacrifice what is most dear to them for another's good, are not qualified for pastoral ministry. John even claimed that priests who can't claim that deep selflessness and love of others, quote, deserve hatred if they get ordained. Keep that in mind if you are considering a life of church ministry, or if you're already a priest or a pastor. That is the qualifying mark of authentic ministry, and anything less is failure, according to John. If you are already a pastor, and sense that you fall short of this hyperbolically high bar, pray for forgiveness for taking the ministerial office while unequipped for it, and pray also that Jesus, in his unfathomably resourceful mercy and grace would make you worthy of the calling that you have accepted rashly. As a side note, Puritans in early America had a similar test for ministerial candidates. They were asked, as part of their ordination exam, whether or not they were willing to be damned for God's glory if that were God's will. Only candidates who claimed to have that level of devotion to God's glory and work were fit to the task. Notice the difference, though, in John's test in the Puritans. For John, the most important characteristic for ministers is the other-centric love that they have. For the Puritans, it's passion for God's glory. I'll leave it to you to decide which one is a better metric of worthiness for ministry, but for me and my house, we will side with John. Second, John is insistent that priests and pastors are genuinely held responsible for those under their care. Let me read another passage for you. Quote, so much then for this world, but how shall we fare in the world to come when we are made to account for every single soul committed to our charge? Then the penalty will not just be disgrace, eternal punishment awaits us. I cannot help quoting here the passage I have already mentioned. Obey them that have rule over you, and submit to them, for they watch in behalf of your souls, as they that shall give account. The fear of this threat continually disturbs my spirit." Unquote. Ministers will not only be judged for their personal obedience to Jesus, though that is, of course, true, 
Ministers will also have to give an account to Jesus of how diligently and well they served the communities entrusted to them by him. If they have been lazy in their ministry, have used their position for self-aggrandizement rather than the spiritual well-being of their parishioners, if they have been too cowardly or people-pleasing to correct their congregants when they sin or to teach Christian ethics sincerely, then those ministers will be punished with no less than condemnation to hell. Again, John uses unmistakably clear and surprisingly severe language at this point. If John is to be believed, then a minister's personal salvation hangs on whether they were a faithful and competent minister. No wonder John evaded the ministry at first. He makes the point over and over again that if he, as a young and inexperienced monk, was given charge of a local church, then his personal salvation would have been in serious danger. Though, of course, neither John nor Jesus expect ministers to be either perfectly moral nor inexhaustibly wise, ministers will be genuinely judged on how well they discharge their ministerial tasks. If a person was either inept or ingenuine in their role, they are in danger of no less punishment than in eternity in hell. I think we have to take John's thoughts here seriously, but maybe not uncritically. I remember in college reading for the first time the extreme and troubling depth of a little passage in 1 John 2.28. It reads, quote, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Unquote. I told my college pastor what I thought the verse might mean, that pastors are somehow morally responsible for Jesus for the spiritual well-being of their congregants. Somehow, in some way I couldn't then and can't now articulate, ministers bear responsibility not only for their own faithfulness, but for the Christian piety of those committed to their charge. As a young person planning to enter ministry, this was quite a challenging realization. My pastor assured me that that couldn't be the meaning of the verse, but he didn't offer me any compelling alternative reading. He just insisted that that couldn't be the case. I think now that my seemingly naive reading of the verse was correct, and that John is right that ministers are genuinely responsible for the souls committed to her or his charge. Except in extreme cases, though, perhaps threatening ministers with hell is too extreme. Paul himself claims in 1 Corinthians 3.15 that ministers whose work doesn't survive Jesus' scrutiny at the judgment, whose ministerial work was inadequate, will be personally saved, even if they are somewhat punished. Paul writes, quote, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Unquote. Though we may not think God will be quite as severe towards inept ministers as John thought, we should let him critique our lackadaisical and carefree approach to Christian ministry. We learn, from him and from the New Testament itself, that undertaking Christian ministry is a dangerous task, and only the morally and practically equipped should undertake it. There is so, so much more to say about John's thoughts on ministry, but for the sake of time, what I've said will have to suffice. If what I've said interests you, or if you want an unmatchable little book about the role of priests and pastors, check out John's On the Priesthood. We'll have links to where you can read it, 
or buy the text up on the website for you. Though John was originally unwilling to undertake the responsibility of the priesthood, and though he would have greatly preferred just to remain in his cave living the monastic life, greatness eventually rises to the top. John was in fact ordained, apparently through the same sort of deception that John had used against Basil. And so, ordained against his will, John was set with the task of preaching to the gathered church at Antioch at least once per week. His sermons were incredible, were so engaging and entertaining that they rivaled the horse races and theaters for popular attention, and John was deeply loved by his congregants and Christians around the empire. Not only was John an incredible preacher whose straightforward style and insightful theological and ethical application appealed to ordinary Christians, but he was also a forward-thinking social progressive. John founded hospitals, cared for the sick and poor, and urged his congregants to do the same. With such an incredible mind, heart, and tongue as John's, it was inevitable that John would rise through the ecclesiastical ranks. He was nominated, again without his knowledge, to the Archbishopric of Constantinople, one of the most important church positions in the empire. Once John had unwillingly arrived in Constantinople, he began to reform the church, refusing to slavishly court the favor of the rich in Constantinople, and beginning to institute wide-ranging reforms of clergy practices. John was determined, with all the resources within his power, to beautify the Bride of Christ as much as he possibly could. This began John's downfall in earthly power, which corresponded and contributed greatly to his astronomical ascendancy in spiritual power and heavenly reward. Because of John's preaching on wealth and poverty, which Tyler will discuss in a moment, John would eventually suffer a martyr's fate and receive the martyr's crown, a death well won for a life well lived. good <laughs> i think so man all right all right now time for your turn <clears throat> mm -hmm. that's not very long though yeah suck okay it's a few pages so all right ready ready antioch was a bustling and beautiful city in john's day various emperors and wealthy patrons donated money to build a 3400 meter long colonnaded street through the middle of town. That's over two miles of paved road with massive columns lining both sides. And, fun fact, Herod the Great was its biggest donor, and historians can only speculate as to what prompted him to give such a massive amount of money to a city that he didn't even rule. Well-to-do citizens of Antioch decorated their marble halls with colorful frescoes and statues. They demonstrated their wealth by plating their walls and even some of their rooftops with gold. It was the Austin of the ancient world. Everyone kept up with the latest fashion trends and had Keep Antioch Weird bumper stickers on their hybrid carriages. It's even rumored that celebrity musician Justinian Timberlakeus had a luxury summer home in the Orontes River, which ran through the middle of town. Even the city's cathedral had earned the nickname Golden House. It sat next to the Imperial Palace and the Hippodrome. 
So, what happens when a man from the Egyptian order of monks becomes the Bishop of Antioch? What happens when the man who made meals out of soggy salt bread stands behind the pulpit in the Golden House before a congregation of social elites? Let's just say that if John were not such a brilliant speaker, I can't imagine that the elites of Antioch would have allowed him to preach for as long as he did. He constantly criticized them for showing off their wealth to the point of annoying the hell out of them. And he knew it. In his 30th homily on 1 Corinthians, he says, quote, But perhaps some thoughtless or scoffing person will object to what I've said, and will altogether deride us, saying, How long will you not cease continually introducing poor men and beggars in your sermons, and prophesying of our misfortunes, and denouncing poverty to come, and desiring to make us beggars? I don't wish you to be beggars, but to open up for you the riches of heaven. End quote. I picture him as sort of a radical Bernie Sanders of the ancient world, incessantly shouting about the top one-tenth of one percent. And John's condemnation of money and those who pursue it rivals Karl Marx himself. It would be anachronistic to call John a communist, but it's honestly not that far off. He viewed private property as a distinctly unchristian idea, and expected the church to lead greater society into propertyless communal living. He said, quote, One's goods are not his own, but belong to his fellow servants. End quote. To John, rich people are responsible for hunger. In fact, he preached that gaining wealth necessarily means that some injustice has occurred in the process. And while it isn't a sin to be rich, it is a sin, indeed it is theft, to withhold wealth from the poor. And it doesn't matter what the poor will do with that money or how they became poor. He said, quote, If you see anyone in affliction, do not be curious to inquire further. His being in affliction gives him a just claim to your help. For if, when you see a donkey choking, you lift him up without inquiring whose he is, you certainly ought not be over-curious about a person. He is God's, whether he's a heathen or a Jew, since even if he is an unbeliever, still he needs help. End quote. It's quite a startling contrast when you compare it with American Christianity which often claims that the poor are to blame for their own poverty. John, and pretty much every other church father, would not have tolerated that attitude. In one of the most profound passages, John says something unlike any of our other church fathers. Quote, Dedicate your wealth to God and become a self-ordained steward for the poor. Love to your fellow man assigns this priesthood to you. End quote. In his 20th homily on 2 Corinthians, he says, quote, For to condemn money makes men approved. It glorifies God and warms love, and raises up the souls of men, 
and makes them priests, indeed of a priesthood that brings great reward. For the merciful man, the man who cares for the poor, is not arrayed in a vest reaching to the feet, nor does he carry about bells, nor wear a crown, but he is wrapped in the robe of loving kindness, a vestment holier than the sacred vestment, and is anointed with oil, not composed of material elements, but produced by the Spirit. And he bears a crown of mercies, for it is said in Psalm 103, verse 4, Who crowns you with pity and mercies? And instead of wearing a plate bearing the name of God, is himself like God. How is this? As Jesus says, you shall be like your Father who is in heaven. End quote. As priests, when we give to the poor, we enter into a greater holy of holies and offer sacrifices on a greater altar, one built by God himself, composed of human souls. It is the body of Christ himself. This idea, the idea that the poor and hungry are Christ's body, is one of the central tenets of John's theology, which brings our Christian ethical obligations together with our understanding of who God is. It comes from Matthew 25, 31-46, where Jesus, speaking of the final judgment, says, quote, He will put the sheep on his right side and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I tell you the truth, just as you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. End quote. And John practiced what he preached. In Antioch, he led his church to use the church's buildings as a hostel for travelers. They also operated a hospital for those with incurable illnesses. They had a registry for widows and ensured that they were taken care of. When he took on the bishopric of Constantinople, he drastically cut his own salary and gave it instead to the local hospital. And that hospital still couldn't handle the health care of the entire city, so John had the church build more hospitals. And he also began a building project of a leper colony outside of the city. Needless to say, John left a legacy so challenging and inspiring that his sermons are almost painful to read. Perhaps more today than ever, our materialism and pursuit of capital has left the body of Christ to rot in the streets. Perhaps more today than ever, we ought to recover the radical vision of John, 
who believe that we can and should live simply and eradicate poverty. Now let's talk for a minute about John's exegesis, the way that he read and understood the Bible. You'll remember from our episode on Origen that his hometown of Alexandria was known for developing and popularizing the allegorical method of interpreting the Bible. We spent a good deal of time explaining Alexandrian exegesis last time, but if you don't remember, just know that they believe the Bible has a hidden meaning behind the words, and if you look hard enough, you can crack the code and unlock the secret, like Tom Hanks in the Da Vinci Code. So, the example we discussed from Philo of Alexandria says that the story of Sarah telling Abram to make a child with her slave, Hagar, is not actually about Abram sleeping with his wife's slave. The women are symbolic of philosophical education. Hagar represents grammar school, and Sarah represents higher education. Abram represents the mind of a person who moves from grammar school to philosophy. If this sounds absurd, that's because, well, it is. Eastern theologians in the 4th century, especially those living in Syria, like John, thought so too. And they began pushing back against Alexandrian exegesis. The alternative is known by scholars as Antiochene exegesis, named after, you guessed it, Antioch, the hometown of our friend John. Now, we don't like using the term Antiochene because it's incredibly misleading. For one thing, it might make you think that some folks in Antioch decided that they didn't like Alexandria, so they sat down and came up with their own way to read the Bible. And for another thing, it might lead you to believe that their method of reading the Bible was limited to that city. The truth is that their differences have a complex historical and philosophical background. We don't want to bore you with all of that, so just know that the way Antiochenes read and the way Alexandrians read boils down to politics, language, and geography. It was relatively difficult to get back and forth between Greece and Syria. You might remember that this is part of why Persia lost in the Greco-Persian Wars. You know, the one where Gerard Butler and his 300 half-naked friends oiled up their suntan bodies and fought in slow motion. This is Sparta! So, despite the fact that Greece conquered the region and then Rome came along and tried to control it for centuries, there was still a geographical separation between East and West. As a result, they remained relatively, but not completely, untouched by Western philosophy. So, the people retained a lot of their identity and their worldview. Remember, Alexandria was the center of Greek philosophy in the ancient world. So those who adhered to Alexandrian exegesis were coming to the Bible with all of these ideas about the world that Eastern people, like John Chrysostom, simply didn't share. Allegory of the type that we discussed in the Origin episode was looked at with some suspicion by the church in the East. 
Against Origen's allegorical method, John is the archetypical example of what Tyler just called Antiochene exegesis, which basically just means reading with what today might misleadingly be called common sense. John's method of reading the Bible is really, really close to the way a modern pastor might read it. John is looking for the authorial intention in each verse, is reading each word and verse in light of its literary and historical context, and almost never tries to spiritualize a passage to make it applicable to his audience. There's no random allegorizing in John, like when Origen said that the five kings in Joshua correspond to the five senses of the body. To help you understand exactly what I mean by these abstract methodological claims, I'll read a comparison of Origen's and John's methods of reading the Bible. The following quote is from page 344 in A History of Biblical Interpretation, in an essay by Francis Young. Quote, the difference between the Antiochene's moral reading and the Alexandrian allegorical interpretation is well illustrated by comparing Origen's treatment of the feeding story with that of John Chrysostom. Origen took the story as symbolic of spiritual feeding. The desert place represented the desert condition of the masses without the law and the word of God, and the disciples were given power to nourish the crowds with rational food. The five loaves and two fish symbolize scripture and the logos. Chrysostom, however, suggests that Christ looked up to heaven to prove he is of the Father, and used the loaves and fish, rather than creating food out of nothing, to stop the mouths of dualist heretics like Marcion and Manichaeus. He let the crowds become hungry, and only then gave them loaves and fish, equally distributed, to teach the crowd humility, temperance, and charity, and to have all things in common. He wanted to be sure that they did not become slaves to the belly. Chrysostom's points were grounded in the historia, the history, unquote. Chrysostom, like Origen, thought the Bible should impinge on our moral and theological lives. But, as an intelligent and responsible reader of texts, he wanted to make sure he was reading theology and ethics out of the Bible rather than into it. And notice how successfully Chrysostom's theological and ethical claims derive from the text. He didn't semi-randomly assign meanings to the loaves and fish, like Origen. Rather, the origin of the food, gotten in a normal, human way, proved that Christ was a real human being. And similarly, the manner of Christ's distribution of the feud was Christ's way of teaching the crowd to be patient, kind, and equitable. Those two, quote, spiritual claims can be genuinely derived from the, quote, literal meaning of the text itself. Like I said, John's way of reading the Bible is strikingly similar to how modern persons are trained to read it. We, like John, think that the meaning of a holy book is determined by the text itself and its surrounding contexts, read in light of its probable authorial intent, and is not a blank slate on which we can allegorize whatever meanings we wish it had said. That, my friends, is what the Syrian Christians were after when they rejected Origen's allegorical method.
Let's talk for a moment now about John's infamous so-called anti-Semitism. But first, a little bit of background. Ancient Roman politicians apparently loved to trade insults and prided themselves on how well they could endure the abuse. British Parliament does the same thing to this day. Just look on YouTube for videos of British Parliament insults and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And you may have heard of a guy named Cicero, which, fun fact, his name means chickpea. He was a politician and master rhetorician in ancient Rome. In fact, he's considered one of Rome's greatest public speakers, and he literally wrote the book on rhetoric. But if you read the things that he said about people, you might find yourself wondering if you accidentally picked up a speech by Donald Trump. Among his most foul remarks, he makes fun of a disabled man, mocks the sexuality of his opponents, and accuses women in the opposing political party of being promiscuous, and even calls them whores. Yes, that was all Cicero, not Trump. Now, politicians trading insults is one thing. It's petty and it's immature, but we giggle and roll our eyes. But even British MPs have a limit. For instance, back in 2013, British Transport Minister Simon Burns was forced to apologize after calling the House of Commons speaker, who was a very short man, a, quote, stupid, sanctimonious dwarf, end quote. So while you and I are right to be offended by this kind of demeaning and horrible speech, and while we should work to become an even more loving and hospitable culture, we should also be careful not to impose our 21st century sensibilities on foreign and ancient cultures. The purpose of rhetoric in the ancient world was to persuade by any means necessary. If you had to insult someone to get the job done, then it was considered the right thing to do. The ends justified the means. So this sort of slanderous assholery was part of a normal ancient rhetorical method. Rhetorical handbooks, like the one Cicero wrote, even had sections on this method of speech. The technical term for it is invective. Pagans used invective against Jews and Christians. Jews used it against pagans and Christians. And Christians used it, mostly, against heretics and Jews. A significant number of Western church fathers were trained in the art of rhetoric and often used the method of invective in an attempt to disqualify their opponents. And again, let me reiterate, the fact that this method was common doesn't make it right, even in their day. After all, Ephesians was written in their day, and it says, quote, Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth but only what is beneficial for the building up of the one in need, that it may give grace to those who hear. You must put away all bitterness, anger, wrath, quarreling, and slanderous talk, indeed all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. Even so, 
Understanding the nature of ancient rhetoric is extremely important for reading ancient texts, especially when you read early Christian works. In fact, some of the most disturbing invective we find in our fathers of the faith comes from John Chrysostom. To make matters worse, it's in a series of sermons he gave, which is now known as Against the Jews. So, let's get a little bit of historical background. About 167 years before Jesus was born, before Rome had taken control of the region, Jerusalem was under control of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Antiochus viciously persecuted the Jews and forbade them from performing their religious sacrifices. If you want to know what the Jews thought of Antiochus, read Daniel 11, which describes him as the apocalyptic monster of the end times. And the famous abomination of desolation is a reference to Antiochus' act of erecting an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple. So, a man named Mattathias and his sons organized a rebellion and carried out guerrilla warfare against Antiochus. Mattathias was eventually killed and his son Judah took leadership. Judah's nickname was The Hammer, which is super badass. And this group of rebels, known as The Hammers, or in Hebrew, The Maccabees, successfully recaptured Jerusalem and cleansed it in dedication, or in Hebrew, Hanukkah, to God. And Hanukkah is still celebrated by Jews every year around the same time as the Christian holiday of Christmas. You can read about the Maccabean Revolt in the books of the Maccabees. And fun fact, most Christian groups outside of Protestantism view those books as secondary but still extremely important for Christian teaching. And the Ethiopian Orthodox Church considers them scripture. So, shortly before the Maccabean Revolt against Antiochus, there was a Jewish woman who had seven sons. And 2 Maccabees chapter 7 tells the story of how she and her sons were arrested by Antiochus, who tried to force them to eat pork, which, as you know, is forbidden for Jews. But they remained faithful in spite of being tortured and killed one by one, all in the sight of their mother. More than 500 years later, the bodies of this mother and her seven sons were enshrined at the Jewish synagogue in Antioch, where John lived. Many Jews made pilgrimages to Antioch in order to venerate these relics, but Christians also venerated them. In fact, the mother and her seven sons still have feast days in Catholic and Orthodox calendars, and their relics are currently held in St. Andrew's Church in Köln, Germany. Now, part of what caused so much tension between Jews and Christians, as we can see here, is that they both considered themselves to be heirs of the Jewish faith. John found himself trying to balance these two worlds, to teach his congregation how to honor Jewish scriptures and Jewish martyrs, while remaining distinct from the Jewish religion it birthed. For new Christians, 
especially those who had come from a pagan background, there were so many similarities between these two religions that it was easy to just practice both of them. Not to mention that synagogues were used for public services. You could go to the local synagogue for medical treatment, or for legal services, such as swearing oaths. And when Theodosius, the emperor, made Orthodox Christianity the official religion, Jews began to ramp up their missionary efforts. So tensions were on the rise. Now let's look at how John handled this situation. Notice first that he preached these sermons to his congregation, which contained many people we might call demi-Christians. John's society, much like ours, was pluralistic. Many new Christians, as I mentioned, had converted from pagan or Jewish backgrounds, and they kind of mixed and matched their religious practices. And John believed this was extremely dangerous, and he explicitly states that this is the reason why he decided to preach these sermons. He considers Judaism, the religion, not the people, to be a disease or a sickness that takes hold of weaker Christians and leads them astray. He says, quote, There are many in our ranks who say they think as we do. Yet some of these are going to watch the festivals, and others will join with the Jews in keeping their feasts and observing their fasts. I wish to drive this perverse custom from the church right now, end quote. Now, this sounds harsh, but remember that the Jews, especially in the Old Testament, had the same mindset. That's why we read in the Old Testament about good Jewish kings destroying the high places and Asherah poles, which were worship places inside of the kingdom, which didn't adhere to Orthodox Judaism of the day. So John didn't say, go destroy synagogues but he wanted Christians to remain distinct from the rest of the world. But, unfortunately, some of his invective gets rather nasty. He calls them dogs. He calls them drunkards and gluttons. He says that the synagogue is no better than the theater and a brothel and a den of thieves and beasts. But with each of these charges, however, John quotes the Old Testament. He makes it a point to say, don't listen to me, listen to the prophets. Everything I say is what the Jewish prophets said about the Jews long before I came around. It was Jeremiah that first called Israel a harlot. It was Hosea that called Israel a stubborn heifer. Moses called them fat and frisky. And John says, quote, and so they are pitiful because they rejected the blessings which were sent to them, while others, that is the Gentiles, seized hold of these blessings and drew them to themselves, end quote. And as for the medical and civil functions of the synagogue, these were both explicitly forbidden for Christians anyway. The Jewish synagogue leaders used magical incantations in order to heal those who came to them, Remember from episode 2 on the Didache that Christians could not participate in magic. And as for the oaths, 
Listen to this story John tells in his first discourse against the Jews. This is from Paul Harkins' translation. John says, quote, Let me tell you this, not from guesswork, but from my own experience. Three days ago, believe me, I'm not lying, I saw a free woman of good bearing, modest and a believer, and a brutal, unfeeling man reputed to be a Christian, for I wouldn't call a person who would dare to do such a thing a sincere Christian, was forcing her to enter the shrine of the Hebrews and to swear there an oath about some matters under dispute with him. And she came up to me and asked for help. She begged me to prevent this lawless violence, for it was forbidden to her, who had shared in the divine mysteries, to enter that place. I was fired with indignation. I became angry. I rose up. I refused to let her be dragged into that transgression. I snatched her from the hands of her abductor. I asked him if he were a Christian, and he said he was. Then I set upon him vigorously, charging him with the lack of feeling and the worst stupidity. I told him he was no better off than a mule if he, who professed to worship Christ, would drag someone off to the dens of the Jews who had crucified him. I talked to him a long time, drawing my lesson from the Holy Gospels. I told him first that it was altogether forbidden to swear, and that it was wrong to impose the necessity of swearing on anyone. I then told him that he must not subject a baptized believer to this necessity. In fact, he must not force even an unbaptized person to swear an oath. After I had talked with him at a great length, and had driven the folly of his error from his soul, I asked him why he rejected the church and dragged the woman to the place where the Hebrews assembled. He answered that many people had told him that oaths sworn there were more to be feared. End quote. Notice that John's rebuke of the man only comes when he has received confirmation that the man professed to be a Christian. Remember that John has already told us from the very beginning of this sermon series that his concern is for Christians who fail to see the difference between Christianity and Judaism. Church fathers use this exact sort of language when confronting heresy. They saw Judaism and heresy as far more insidious than paganism, because they look so much like Orthodox Christianity. So John wanted to make it absolutely clear that Christianity and Judaism, despite their connection, are not the same. At the end of each sermon in this series, he calls for those Christians who have gone to participate in the rituals of Judaism to return to the Christian faith. So, we can see that his concern is not primarily about the Jews, but about Judaizing Christians. He simply uses invective, that rhetorical method, against the Jewish faith in order to persuade his audience, these Christians, not to participate in Jewish religious practices. Now, I know I gave a lot of background before we looked at these sermons, and it's even more complex than this. But there's a tendency, especially among scholars who know better, to simply ignore these historical factors and use John's sermons to say that John hates the Jews. Some of these scholars even credit John with laying the foundation for the Holocaust, 
And we think that a more responsible way to approach these issues is, first, to admit that John's language was wrong and harmful. We certainly can't lay blame for the Holocaust at John's feet. But we should use this as an example and a warning about the effect of our words. John wasn't calling for the extermination of Jews, but the language he and other church fathers used about Jews was ultimately repeated by Nazi propagandists in their calls for extermination. Think about the way many pastors talk about Muslims today. No matter how much we consider the background for anti-Muslim rhetoric, and no matter how much these pastors claim to love Muslims, we should still condemn this speech and consider John's case as a warning for how it could be used in the future. Second, we should realize that John's issues with Judaism was not racially motivated. John wasn't an anti-Semite. Race wasn't even a sociological phenomenon in his world. His concerns were purely religious. And finally, we need to see that John's view of the Jewish religion did not change his view of their dignity as human beings. As he said in a sermon on the book of Hebrews, which I quoted for you earlier, quote, So you too, if you see anyone in affliction, do not be curious to inquire further. His being in affliction gives him a just claim to your help. For when, if you see a donkey choking, you lift him up without inquiring whose he is, you certainly ought not be overly curious about a person. He is God's, whether he is a heathen or a Jew. Since even if he is an unbeliever, he still needs help. End quote. Everything we've just said about John's life, work, and ministry is only a tiny sliver of John's incredible, sometimes challenging, sometimes troubling work. John's writings are an absolute treasure house for Christian life, theology, and ethics. We've talked about what seems to be some of the more interesting and challenging aspects of John's writings, but we encourage you to go read him for yourself to learn more. And, of course, to listen to more of our episodes about him in the future. One typically isn't able to make the radically countercultural and downright offensive moral demands that John did and not suffer for doing so. John learned firsthand what exactly Jesus meant by what he said in Matthew 5. Quote, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you." Unquote. Among the many rich and powerful enemies that John made with his radically Christian ethical preaching was the Empress Eudoxia. When she heard John preach, she felt that his denunciation of luxury and the self-indulgent use of money was directed at her, and in part it was. Like many rich persons today, even many quote-unquote Christian rich persons today, Eudoxia was annoyed and offended that someone would challenge her indulgent use of wealth. And so, 
Instead of changing her lifestyle to conform to Jesus' ethical demands, Eudoxia exiled John from Constantinople to the city of Caucasus, now Guxan, Turkey. This 183-hour walk, according to Google Maps, took a serious toll on John, exacerbating many of the health problems that he had acquired during his extremely rigorous monastic lifestyle. But, thanks be to God, John survived this first exile and made it to Caucasus. And remember that leper colony that Chrysostom was planning to build? When John was exiled, the people whose land the colony butted up against prevented the colony from being completed. The rich struck back against the gospel yet again. While in his new home, John continued to serve and support the churches in any way he could, since in his own words, quote, it is impossible for anyone to be saved who never works for the salvation of his neighbor, unquote. John continued to write letters and thus continued to wield significant authority in his old church at Constantinople. But Eudoxia would not allow this preacher to continue upsetting the churches and the world's order by insisting on some radical, absurd money ethic, even if he'd learned it from Jesus. So Eudoxia exiled John again, this time to Pityus, modern Pitsunda in Abkhazia, Georgia, which is yet another 264-hour walk from his new home in Caucasus. This time, John's health did not hold out. After 60 hours of walking, John reached Kamana Pontica, modern Tokat in Turkey, and there collapsed by the city's gate. After being brought to a local inn, John lay unconscious in a rented bed, not even owning the pillow on which he would breathe his last breath. His body failing, his cells unable to restore themselves quickly enough, exhausted from years of asceticism and now this brutal regimen of walking, John closed his eyes one last time. He took one final breath and prayed for his sister and the souls of his departed mother and father. All in an instant, he prayed for his friends Theodore of Mopsuestia and especially Basil, for the emperor, for the congregations at Constantinople and Antioch, for his mentors Libanius and Diodor and Miletius, and even for the empress Eudoxia, who had effectively sentenced him to death. After this one final act of warmth, love, and piety, John departed from this life and met Jesus, who was eagerly waiting to receive him. Well done, my good and faithful servant, Jesus said when John arrived. Enter into the joy of your master. And thus John died as he had lived, a martyr, a faithful witness to Jesus that not even death could overcome. As Gerhard mentioned, there's so much more to Chrysostom's life and works that we didn't get a chance to cover, such as his chauvinism or his involvement in combating heresy. Hopefully we'll get a chance to do an episode or two on his works soon. Until then, check out our website, podcasticapatristica.com, to find resources for further reading. We'll tell you where to find books about him and sermons that we find particularly compelling. Chrysostom is a great place to begin if you're just getting into the early church, 
His writing is easy to understand and possibly more pertinent today than it was when he first wrote. So stay tuned for our next episode, which will be the first in a series on the Nicene Creed. We'll see what the fathers had to say about Jesus' relationship with God. What does it mean for Jesus to be God's son? Does that make him less divine than the Father? When did Christians start believing in Jesus' divinity? Did Emperor Constantine force the church to accept the Nicene Creed? All this and more in our upcoming episodes. Until next time, in the words of Barnabas, Farewell, children of love and peace. May the Lord of glory and all grace be with your spirit. Amen.